0: Welcome to Factum Agri, dedicated to New Zealand's primary industry. Each week, I talk with farmers and growers, industry, the science community, and policy makers to hear their news and views on matters relevant to both our rural and our urban communities. This week on Factum Agri, I have Professor David Norton join me to discuss his latest work in the biodiversity space. He joins me now. Hello David, thank you for your time and welcome back to the show. It's a pleasure to be back again, Angus. Thank you for inviting me. We've talked a few times previously about biodiversity, carbon farming through exotic trees, and in particular how this relates to farmers and establishing a fair and equitable system that improves environmental outcomes on farm, as well as providing recognition for the good work they do. Um, Today, I'm keen to hear about a biodiversity credit system that you have been involved with. Can you provide some background on this?
1: Yes, it's a really good question. And, and I feel there's a lot of confusion about biodiversity credits and what they actually are. So if you can bear with me, I want to try and explain that. So everybody's familiar with carbon credits. And carbon credits work because there are carbon debits, which is, of course, emissions of greenhouse gases into the atmosphere. So the way a carbon credit works is that there is a debit and emission. Um, a tonne of carbon goes into the atmosphere and then that can be offset by a carbon credit, which is a tonne of carbon being sequestered in a tree, ideally a native tree. Um, so that, that's a carbon credit. Now, In the biodiversity space, um, historically, um, and still in some parts of the world people do this, we have what are called biodiversity offsets. So a developer wants to put a subdivision in, for example, um, and in doing that, they've got to clear some forest. So that's a debit. So they then do some biodiversity work somewhere else. Um, They might um, plant a new forest or do some active management to improve a forest, and that's called a biodiversity credit. Mm. And so that's come out of this biodiversity offsetting system Biodiversity offsetting with, with credits have been used in New Zealand in a limited number of situations. Um, they've been used with a couple of wind farms, for example. Um, there was one farming situation where, where it was applied around there in Karnika. Um, but really, and the court system has allowed for biodiversity offsetting um, with credit credits and, and debits, um, but it hasn't been applied widely in New Zealand. The national policy statement on Indigenous biodiversity does allow for biodiversity offsetting, and within that policy statement, there is a section there that explains how a biodiversity offset might happen, um, how you might quantify the debit, the the clearance, shall we say, and mm. how you might quantify the credit to get the balance right. Um, so that that's a bit of background. I'll, yep. I'll just stop, Angus, on that stuff.
0: I myself, I'm not a fan of exotics being planted for the sole purpose of sequestering carbon. And I talk about this a lot. Firstly, in my mind, they are a monoculture forest, which does not support biodiversity or support the natural environment of this country. Secondly, pine trees have a limited lifespan and long-term limitations. Doesn't it make sense to plant native trees instead of exotics and get rewarded in the same fashion?
1: Yeah, a hundred percent. Um, yeah, I, I couldn't agree more with you on that one. I mean, um, you know, the advantages of native trees are just huge. So, so, so that again takes us down two pathways. So, so why are we planting native trees? Um, so one pathway would be as a carbon offset. So accepting there will be um, a number of hard-to-abate emissions, um, methane would be one example of that. Uh, there might be other hard-to-abate emissions um, that will need to offset into the future. And, I mean, native native forests provide so many more advantages. I mean, they are long-lived, um, they're there permanently, yeah. they're adapted to the environment, but, but most importantly, they bring a whole raft of other values with them. They provide habitat for native biodiversity. They're part of what makes us who we are in this country. I mean, you know, pine trees is not who we are. Pine trees belong to North America, yeah. um, Douglas fir as well. So, so they're, they're about our cultural identity, they're about biodiversity, and of course they they also provide all of the other benefits soil stabilisation, all the landscape resilient stuff as well. So the, so they are um, far, far better. The disadvantage, of course, is that they don't grow as fast, yeah. um, but they'll be there in perpetuity, and there is yeah. no guarantee, there is absolutely no guarantee that a pine forest will survive beyond 50, 60, 70 years. We just don't have enough examples of old pine forest to have any confidence that that will be the case. Mm. Um, Yeah, absolutely.
0: So how would you see a biodiversity credit system work and in particular benefit farmers in this country?
1: Yeah. Okay. So, so I think we need to, again, separate carbon credits from biodiversity credits. And I personally actually don't like the word biodiversity credit. And I think MFE okay. made a mistake calling them biodiversity credits because, you know, leaving aside the fact the government has said that the new government has said that they there won't be SNAs, um, or they're going to review SNAs. Um the reality is we don't want to clear native forests. We don't want to clear native vegetation. Um, and, and the few and the there may be some clearance, like you know, obviously regrowth after fertilizer addition, but as a general rule, we don't want to go about clearing native vegetation. What we actually need, and what farmers need, is they don't need rules about not clearing vegetation. They need rules or they need support um, around understanding what they have on their farms. They need support in terms of um, helping them understand or, or, or supporting them and managing that biodiversity, managing the threats to that biodiversity. And they need incentives, financial payments to help with funding that work because it comes at a cost. And that work Looking after biodiversity on farms is, you know, clearly there's a benefit to the farmer, but there's a, definitely a benefit to the people who are marketing our products offshore because it's part of our green story, mm-hmm. and, and there's a huge benefit to everybody because that's our biodiversity, New Zealand Inc's biodiversity, so it's part of our our whole thing. So to me, rather than calling it biodiversity credits, we need a biodiversity incentive or biodiversity payment system that recognises and supports farmers as they manage native biodiversity on their farms. We don't need an Indigenous policy statement that says, this is significant, we'll pass a rule and we won't let you do anything in it. That, that is the wrong way to go about it. Native biodiversity needs to be managed, it needs to be looked after, um, and farmers need to be supported and celebrated for the work they're doing with native biodiversity. That's what I think we should be talking about, a biodiversity incentive system or a biodiversity payment system. It's not a credit, because there's no debit there. Mm. It's, it's not
0: credit. Mm. Are there some examples of a biodiversity incentive payment system internationally. Um, yes, and some of them are controversial. So you could argue that the EU, you know, um,
1: farm um, payments for looking after hedgerows and and things like that would be examples of that. Um, where, where I see it working is, is, is I see it being a mix of, of government funding and a mix of, which is what the EU is, but I'm talking about New Zealand mm. and, and a mix of, um, industry funding. So I'm going to give you two examples of those, one mm. of which is currently happening and, and the other one is one that a project we, we've just launched in the last couple of days that I think could, could sit re- really nicely there to support farmers. So, one example that's currently happening is a European knitwear company called Sheep Inc. Mm -hmm. Um, They source wool from um, high country farms in New Zealand, Merino wool. Um, And they have, and working with the New Zealand Merino Company, um, who are really Proactive and positive in the space, and they are um, they are funding projects on New Zealand um, supplier farms to do with biodiversity and restoration. So that's one one example of a biodiversity payment. They're not required to do it; it's just part of their um, their philosophy, their ethic, and part of their marketing story. And so that, that that's one commercial example. I mean, I could mm. see that rolling out, you know, quite widely. But I think the other way we've got to look at it is is governments stepping in because, as I said that biodiversity on farms needs management. Having a rule in a district plan or original plan saying you can't clear it doesn't actually look after it. it you know, pigs don't give a toss about rules. Um, yep. Old man bear doesn't give a toss about rules. Mm-hmm. Um, so we actually need support. We need farmers. We need we need three things that I said before. We need farmers to understand what they've got. I mean, SNAs in and of themselves aren't the problem. The problem is the way the rules that sit behind them. Mm. Farmers actually need to be um, helped to understand what they have on their farms and, and to understand what's actually valuable. And what's less valuable. So they actually know where the priorities are. They then need support to um, to manage that biodiversity and 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 to look after it. And, and 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 I think one of the ways that we can do that is is through um, some form of government funding. So I'm involved with pure Advantage, which is um, a philanthropic organization. Uh, trustees include um, Stephen Tyndall, so Stephen Tyndall, Philip Mills, uh, Rob Morrison, Damon Salmond. Andrew Grant and Catherine Corridge. I'm apologies if I've forgotten somebody. I think it's everybody. Yeah. Um, they have, they, they, they've, they, they've done programs on regenerative agriculture in the past, and they've been working with Otato Nahiri, which is looking at the values of native forests. And I've been helping them as a um, strategic science advisor. And we've, um, just launched two days ago, a project called re or an initiative called recloaking Papatua Nuku. The basic idea of recloaking Papatua Nuku is to try and address um the biodiversity crisis and the climate crisis together by focusing on we're suggesting 2 million hectares uh initially of of land in New Zealand both public and private land um and managing that for for bringing forest back recloaking the putting the forest back on Papatūānuku um and so we're talking about new plantings we're talking about looking after existing regenerating kanuka and there's uh, so much regenerating kanuka and manuka across um you know sheep and beef farms throughout yeah. New Zealand and and cut over podocarp forests, you know, in the North Island, King Country is full of cut over podocarp forests. So the idea is to to um, manage those. Um, to, say, put some new forests in, um, look after existing forests and allow natural regeneration. And we're doing that for carbon, one, for biodiversity, two, and for landscape resilience. So we can address the problems that we started off talking about around what's happened with unsustainable pine plantations being put across the landscape. Mm. Because those forests are going to provide all those benefits and a whole stack more. And what the project is suggesting is that government is looking at spending anywhere from, you know, 3 to $23 billion in buying offshore carbon credits. And I think, um, given all of the question marks around offshore carbon credits, the cost is going to be substantially more than that. So um, recloaking papatuanuku Nuku is saying, well, why, why send that money offshore? Why not put it in New Zealand? Why not? You know, help support farmers and rural communities and iwi in managing and enhancing and restoring native forest within New Zealand rural areas with the co benefits, not only of carbon, of biodiversity and landscape resilience. And I think we've, we've costed it out. Um, that comes out at about 12 billion, mm. which is substantially less than enough to spend on offshore carbon credits. And the benefits for, for rural New Zealand are going to be massive. The New Zealand Inc are going to be massive. And of course, it's going to be really, really important as we come to, you know, continue to access, you know, Europe and UK and North America and Japan, these markets for our farm products. Um, we've got the environmental stories behind us. Um, mm. So that, that's, I think, is, is in my mind the best example of how we can support farmers to look after biodiversity on their farms. It's not a biodiversity credit; it's a payment. It's going to be shared, and and um, you know, in terms of the income that comes out of it and everything with with the farmers, and of course, it's in New Zealand Inc's benefits. But I think, and and you, you I'm sure you, I, I, we've probably spoken about this before. I mean, I think catchment groups are the core of this. I really believe that catchment groups are going to provide the the vessel to deliver this because we've got to do it at a catchment scale because Mm. the threats to biodiversity occur at a catchment scale. Biodiversity operates at a catchment scale. Farmers working together can look at their catchment and say, where are the best places to do this?
0: Mm. Now, for farmers listening out there, they might be thinking, well, this is all a lot uh, and it could be overwhelming for many. Have you got anything to say to those farmers in terms of what engagement might look like and potentially how these things might roll out in a way that farmers understand and can get on board with i think catchment groups are going to be the key to that i've
1: spent most of this year in my quote unquote retirement um talking to catchment groups and i think farmers coming together in catchment groups is is the way that that they can engage in this process we can bring the expertise and to support them um, and, and so they don't feel um, left out or on the sideline or whatever. And I think working together in catchment groups is going to be, you know, absolutely essential to make this, this project work. We've of course got to get government to support it first of all. Um, but I think, um, yeah, when you look at the um, these offshore carbon credits and the cost of them, um, I think it actually is a no brainer. And I think you've also got to gotta, gotta think about the fact that it's not only going to help sequester carbon and biodiversity and landscape, resilience, someone's got to do the mahi, someone's got to plant the plants, someone's Mm. got to get out there and treat the deer and the pigs. So we're talking about employment in rural New Zealand and we all know we need more of that. So I think this is just, compared to say pine trees for carbon, which
0: provides virtually zero employment, this this will be a huge boost for rural communities, I believe. And you touched on uh, government support. Well, we have a new government and we have the opportunity to get this right. It's not something that needs to be rushed in my view. We absolutely need to keep moving, but we need to ensure the structure of policy is right and that will set the country up for future generations. Yeah, that's a really
1: good point. And I mean, the way we've sort of been, and again, what Pure Advantage is doing, Pure Advantage are just trying to put the idea, the concept out there, and then hopefully it will get its own legs and run. Um, But what I see is I see initially, I'd like to see um, half a dozen or a dozen um, demonstration catchments um, and iwi land holdings You know, trialing how we will make this work on the ground in the first two or three years, and then that would then grow into a full scale scheme. And I think the other thing I think would be really important in my view, anyway, is I don't I would not want to see this tied up in a government agency being run out of, you know, MFE or MPI or doc. Mm. I think it should be run out of a separate entity, a very small, streamlined entity, a bit like Predator Free 2050 with a board, representatives from federated farmers, from eWE groups, from from um, those, the environmental people expertise around this you know obviously from government as well um to try and run this and i really believe strongly that um if there is this 12 billion dollars going to be spent we've got to make sure that the maximum amount of that 12 billion dollars is actually spent on the ground is not tied up in bureaucracy mm. um because otherwise it's you know it's just a waste
0: completely agree wouldn't it be wonderful if we could have 100 science-led approach that has essentially a bipartisan policy settings in place and we're not panicking after every 3 years after political cycles coming to an end to worry about what the next government's going to chop and change based on policy aspirations look 100% agree Angus and I think um I think
1: you know this project is not about you know, left or the right of the political spectrum. It's about our children and our grandchildren. It's about mm. the future. It's about the resilience of our communities. It's about the people who live in, whether it's Southland or Tairawhiti or or wherever in New Zealand. It's about their resilience, their ability to live there. And of course, not only will there be, be the benefits through, you know, biodiversity, carbon, um, landscape resilience, rural employment, but by having better landscape resilience, there's less cost to maintain infrastructure. And of course, that's also a benefit that's, that hasn't been costed in this. But, re, but the the development of recloaking Papatuanuku, it is a science based approach. The costings have been done um, really, really carefully by people who who understand um you know all of this stuff and, and it's been really well researched. And I think it is a very robust um, proposal. And I I sincerely hope that we can get bipartisan support for it. And I sincerely hope that this government um take you know we're going to present it at COP. Um, so it's going to be presented in one of the um, events at COP and I really hope that um, Simon Watts is the new minister for Climate change is able to stand up there and actually say, we we think this is a, a really good way to go forward. But you're right, we don't want to start at 100% tomorrow. We need to then make sure we get everything lined up and going correctly and work into it so as it a successful project.
0: Mm, indeed. David, um, always great to catch up with you. Thank you very, very much for your time. Oh, you're welcome, Angus. Look, it's always a pleasure to talk. Recloaking Papatuanuku and a biodiversity payment system Could well indeed work in this country. Something has to work, and something has to change. Obviously, we need timber and pine trees and other species. They will always play a role in this country for farmers and the wider economy. But we most definitely need to move away from using pine trees as a tool for offsetting emissions. Exotic forests, for the sole purpose of carbon storage, is short-sighted, And provides no value to rural communities nor do they support biodiversity or enhance New Zealand's natural environment. We have the ability to use native vegetation to sequester carbon and we have the ability to reward farmers for their efforts in doing so. Furthermore from a New Zealand Inc. perspective and in terms of us positioning ourselves in the global market and our brand of being clean green and grass-fed well this all ties in just nicely that's all for me this week thank you for listening and catch you next time